if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, that's where we'll be today. Matthew 21 is the, uh, the triumphal entry, but I want to start with a story that Jesus tells from Luke 16. And in Luke 16, Jesus tells a story um, about a man who is wealthy. Uh, he's so wealthy, we actually don't even have a name for him. He's just rich. <laughs> like, in fact, when the Bible was translated, obviously, as you know, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. And when it's translated from Greek and Hebrew into Latin, the, the Latin Bible is the one that we had for the longest time. And Latin um, riches dives. And so we just call him dives sometimes, which sounds nice. Just like that, dives. If you are pregnant, maybe think about naming your kid dives. You could be worse. Dives is rich. Uh, he's clothed in purple and fine clothing. He has a table of all the things that he could possibly want to eat. And he is just living a happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise life. And at his doorstep, or very near to him, is another man. His name is Lazarus. And Lazarus has fallen into the other side of the ditch. Instead of being wealthy, he is destitute. And he is hungry. In fact, he's so hungry that, in fact, he's so malnourished, I should say. He's so malnourished that wounds open up onto his body. Um, one of the interesting things I learned down in Tennessee uh, last week as I was down there for an academic con- conference is that one of the things that we've learned recently about archaeology in the ancient world is this, that over 50% of the ancient world uh, struggled with intestinal worms. So if you don't cook your meat, you get worms, right? Everybody know this? If you don't cook your meat, you go... In fact, a few years ago, they had a, they, we, there was a North Korean who kind of escaped North Korea, and he got shot a couple times, and he, but he made it to South Korea, and they were you know, fixing him up. They found a 10-inch... Who can give me 10 inches? I don't know how to... I'm, who's car, Paul, give me some carpentry. Where's Mark? Oh, he's with the kids. 10 inches, is that what you got, Gwen? A worm about this big in his guts. Right? That, when Jesus says to the little children, or when he says, sorry, when he says to, to everyone, he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Imagine you are one of the over 50% who no matter how much you eat, can't get enough nourishment because of the intestinal worms inside of you. Right? And so Lazarus is laying here, and you can imagine Dives kind of coming out and walking by him like every day. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever lived in a city where you walk past homeless people every day, but you get really used to that. You get really used to walking by people and pretending they aren't there. And you can just imagine Dives doing that every day, day after day. And Eventually, Lazarus dies. He, He passes And he is taken, it says, to Abraham's bosom, which is also weird to say in English in the modern world. But I take it as a moment of great comfort, like Abraham, the great father, Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, who himself is riddled with his own issues, but has this faith deeply rooted, holds Lazarus, and dives as well, passes, and he ends up in fire and in torment in Hades, we read. And he can see from a far way off for He can see Lazarus receiving comfort at Abraham's bosom. And he says, Abraham, father, send Lazarus over to me that he might take one drop of water to cool my tongue. Imagine the suffering. That is so great that one drop of water to cool one's tongue. I mean, what a role reversal, right? 
What a role reversal. And Abraham, speaking back to Lazarus, says, I can't do that. There's a great chasm that is fixed between me and you. I can't help you. And Lazarus shouts back, well then send, or dives, shouts back, well send Lazarus to my brothers that they might not suffer and make these mistakes that I've made. And, and Abraham answers, he says, they have the prophets and Moses. If they won't listen to the things they already know, what good is a resurrected poor man going to do for them? And the problem with the story, of course, is it's a terrible story. What do, you, what do you do with that? Jesus just leaves it. He just mic drops and walks away. What do we do with that? It's maddening how often Jesus tells stories and never tells us what they mean. Like, okay, great. How rich is too rich? I need to know this. How much compassion is enough compassion? I really, really want to know this. And yet, we get no answers. Jesus just leaves it floating. But he does so, I think, because Jesus understands if he lays down a rubric, just a description of the kingdom, we'll find our loopholes. And so he tells stories that are meant to engage our imaginations and ask us to think more deeply about who we are and how we live in the world. Because our world is full of dives and it's full of Lazarus. And we, we're dives. Or dives. And so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough story. It's asking big questions. And this is the beginning of Holy Week, the holiest week of the year. The year uh, kind of, is, is for those of you who are maybe new to the Christian tradition, maybe you don't know this, but for a long time, Christians marked their calendars. The rhythm of their life was set up based upon the events of the life of Jesus. And so we celebrate things like um, the birth of Jesus, the nativity. We celebrate things like uh, uh, today, Palm Sunday. We celebrate things like um, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday and Pentecost and these events of Jesus' life. This kicks off the week where Jesus has his big reveal, where um, as the season finales, remember back the season finales, all will be revealed. Like Kind of like that moment. Jesus is about to show it all. All the cards are about to be laid at the table. It's, we're all about to see what it's, what it's about. And we shouldn't be surprised by anything that goes on this week because Jesus opens up his ministry, for instance, in talking uh, about his own mission in the world. He goes into the synagogue and he opens a scroll and he reads from Isaiah 49, this passage that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, recovery of sight from the blind, to, to set at liberty uh, the prisoners to recovery, I misread all that, sorry guys. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he summarizes this, this, this kind of message which is puzzling to everyone around him. He's like, well, the, he says, turn or repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And we begin to ask questions. What does it mean for God's rule to come in and begin to break into our world, to break into our lives? What does it mean? 
He calls us forward. He calls this passage from Isaiah all the way into his day. And he ends it by saying, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. They are coming to pass in me. This is what Jesus seems to be all about. If you're looking at your Bibles as I called you to in Matthew chapter 21, you'll see that Jesus is... um, making plain his kingship. And he makes plain his kingship by doing something that kings do. He goes to the capital city of Israel. He goes to Jerusalem. And he is going to march through, parade through, maybe is a better way of putting it, through Jerusalem. And it says in verse 5 of Matthew, so if you're, if you're using the Pew Bible just like I am, you're on page 826. Um, but it says it kind of breaks it out a little bit so you can see that this is set apart in some way. Like this is a quote from somewhere else. And is indeed a quote from somewhere else. It's a quote from Zechariah 9.9. And it reads this, Say to your daughter, O Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, and your king is humble. How do we know he's humble? How does he demonstrate his humility? Well, he is mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So a donkey is not a large animal, right? Everybody seen a donkey? I should have put pictures up, maybe. Everybody seen a donkey before? They're not big animals. But then, like, shrink it down. Like, I have an image of Jesus riding, like, a miniature pony. Like, his feet are dragging through the street. Like, his, you know, like, I mean, have you ever seen, like, one of those little ponies? Like, I mean, how is Jesus, like, what's a, how big is this? I mean, this is like Jesus riding through Jerusalem on a tricycle, It is not impressive, but it is prophecy, isn't it? And there's a reason why he chose that prophecy. What is he communicating to us? And anytime, this is just kind of a a free free advice (laughs) when you're reading your Bible. Anytime you notice a breakout section like this, and usually they'll give you a little footnote with a footnote at the bottom, kind of signal, oh, this comes from Zechariah. You should follow that footnote all the way back to Zechariah and read the whole chapter. Because what... What the gospel author is trying to do is trying to clue you in, trying to help you understand. This is just a snippet. If you want the fuller picture, go back and read the whole thing. And if you were to do that, you would read other pas- uh, uh, the larger section of Zechariah 9. says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem. These are, this is just a kind of a location in Israel. So both of these are location points. So he's taking away these weapons of war. These are the, if you want to win battles in the ancient world, you need chariots. That makes sense? You all seen Braveheart. You know this. Not Braveheart. Gladiator. That's the one I was thinking of. You've all seen Gladiator. You know this. Or, or some version of that. War horses kind of matter. The, the tanks of the ancient world. And the, taking these things from Jerusalem. The battle bow. The, the, the machine gun, you might put it, of the ancient world. Will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. This is the king that's to come. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from river to the river, the ends of the earth. As for you, uh, this is speaking to the people of God, because of the blood of my covenant. Have you heard that today? Right? Isn't that? Right? The blood of my covenant is with you. I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. And yet his freedom, his action, his, his bringing forth this rule that's going to extend from sea to sea, 
How does it happen? Somehow it happens without chariots, without war horses, without battle bows, without all of the usual trappings of war. Instead, this prince steps into the world and he rolls through Jerusalem declaring his might, his power, his strength, his eternality, his kingship on a tricycle. On the colt, the foal of a donkey. Ancient words that are meant to draw us to see that God's vision of the world is a different kind of vision of the world. A world that we have been trained to not see. We've been conditioned to think about power and money and strength and privilege and position. And we've been trained to think of ourselves and our place in the world and how the world itself even just works in a way that is counter to God. Our assumptions are not his assumptions. Our ways are not his ways. And this is good news if you're the kind of person who is really wrestling, really seeking. We read further that the disciples brought this colt to him. In verse 7, they bring the donkey Uh, And here Matthew um, reads them as both, donkey and colt. They put their coats on them. He sat on them. And as he goes, the crowd spreads cloaks on the road. Others cut branches. This is palm branches, hence Palm Sunday. From the trees, they spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is he who comes in the name. Or Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This too uh, is another place, and some of your Bibles might even break it out. For whatever reason, the version, if you're using this, doesn't do that. But that is another quote from a passage that Paul read as our call to worship from Psalm 18. It too then has a larger context. And here we see Psalm 18, Lord save us. This in Hebrew looks uh, kind of like Hosanna. Uh, and so this is what it's saying. Lord, this is the actual name of God, Yahweh, Yah, save us. Hosanna, Lord grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And from the house of the Lord we bless you. So this is like, this is a, a song of praise, a song of victory, a song of something coming up. But if you... Rewind just a few verses before that. You find a quote that Jesus is actually going to bring up again on, your next, on the next page down here. It says this. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. So let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. Hosanna. Right? It all runs together. And this is a very interesting little passage, um, one of the more morbid passages in the Bible. If you imagine uh, a cornerstone, it, 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 I, I like the pyramids. Anybody else like the pyramids? I always thought the pyramids were cool. This is a cool thing, right? This ancient world, these giant pyramids. And they find that like, the, the, like the, all these pieces like, fit together like, insanely well. And if you imagine dropping uh, a stone that's going to set up this great pyramid, this great thing, you're going to set your first stone. You can imagine how big that stone would be, how important it would be for that stone to be square, and then how important it would be to line Line up all of the other angles so that that one stone actually sits and everything levels out. 
The cornerstone matters because everything else will align with it. And so what do we have? We have this image of a king who is coming, the Lord coming to save us. And he is going to be that cornerstone so that every intention and doctrine and action and inclination of our head, our will, our hands, our heart, everything has to line up with Jesus or the building skewed. Jesus, interestingly, um, makes this a gory image. Uh, when he quotes it, he says, "And the one who fall on who sorry, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him." So imagine this stone. A crane has lifted it. It's about to be put in place. And your options are one of the two. Either you can huddle underneath it and let it fall on top of you, or they can drop you from two stories and you can fall on top of it. Which one do you pick? I mean, this is a weird thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? Like, oh, great. Thanks, Jesus. Like, <laughs> I, I think it's, it's funny. I don't know. It's just funny. <laughs> I think it's tremendous that, uh, that Jesus is, is trying to do this, is trying to get us to see something, and I think it's this. If you imagine the other stones that will have to be set on top of that cornerstone or next to that cornerstone, imagine you're, uh, <coughs> you're cutting that stone. You imagine pulling a big stone out of a quarry or rock pile or mountain and all of the cutting and polishing and chipping away you would have to do to set that stone up so it fit with the cornerstone. There's a lot of work that has to be done, right? In order to make it sit right. And I think what Jesus is trying to draw us to is he's saying that, listen, God has chosen the cornerstone. The cornerstone has been picked and it is dropping into place. And there are those who will reject that stone, they will not have anything to do with it. They don't have any interest in the king riding on the colt, the king of humility, the king of peace, the king of justice, the king who says, listen, you are going to have to sacrifice so that others can have more. Those people will be crushed under it. Those people who see the power of the corner, cornerstone recognize that if they are going to have a place in that building that God is building, they will need some serious breaking. How many of you have broken your arm? Anyone ever broken their arm? I've never broken any bones. It sounds like it's terrible. Is it terrible? Okay, good. I assume so. I'm going to steer clear. I said I'm going to steer clear. I'm just for, I'm, it's not on my bucket list. But uh, you imagine if you break your arm, and the arm doesn't set quite right, but it begins to heal, Right? Because to heal wrong. Eventually, you just kind of get used to that hand not working well, that arm not working well. It just doesn't function right. That becomes normal to you. You just learn how to live with it. But it's not normal, is it? It's an aberration. It's something that's not working quite right. So you might go to a doctor, and that doctor might re-break that arm, reset that arm, so that the arm can heal and grow, and there is pain there, isn't there? Pain there. And this is what Jesus proposes to do. This is this image that we have of the king that has come, this king who is new, this king who is different, this king who is not like any other king that has ever come before, and yet he is the king by which all other things, whether kings or paupers, will be judged. 
That's a powerful word. And there are those who will reject it, and there will, are those who will accept it. And so there's kind of two words going on here. One, for those of you who are here today who maybe haven't accepted it, you haven't lined your life up with Jesus. My plea to you is to line your life up with Jesus. Not only because it saves your soul, not only because of the promise of eternal life, not only because of grace and forgiveness, but because it heals you. It heals you. And sets you right in a new way that you've never been before. It breaks you too. It breaks you too. And if you're a Christian here today, there's a bigger question, and that is, have you honestly been broken? Because we can all keep rules. We can all keep strictures. We can all kind of, yes, I need to show up to church. Yes, I've read my Bible. Yes, I've given to missions. Yes, I've uh, tithed. Yes, I've done all these things. You can check off a lot of boxes and never be broken. But Jesus doesn't imagine a Christian that functions that way. The question is, have you been broken? When was the last time you were broken? And what did it look like? Because it seems to me that the most important thing that could happen to a person is to be broken upon the cornerstone. And so we should ask these kinds of questions over this week in which we contemplate the meaning of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his coming ascension. What does it mean that we have now been called by the living God to follow this king, this prince of peace? Rich Mullins said, um, in referring to heaven, we all want to go there something awful, but to stand there will take some grace. I think that's true. You'll notice as you look at, I want to encourage you, point, point you back to your scriptures here. So as you notice this uh, triumphal entry scene, the triumphal entry scene is here in 21 uh, verses 1 through 10. Then Jesus moves next. This is all kind of one storyline. He moves next into verses 12 and uh, uh, 12 and 13, where he goes into the temple and he casts out the money changers and the corruption that is dwelling within this place that is supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of healing. And he casts all those people out. And then I want you to notice this really important line here in verse 14. Like, Jesus has done all of these demonstrations. He's demonstrated his kingship rolling through Jerusalem on the donkey. He's gone into the temple, cast out all of the corruption. And then in verse 14, what does the new king who's come to Jerusalem do? The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. That's the king. I don't know much about kings or presidents. I've seen a few presidents, and I've never seen them do anything like this. Right? What do politicians do when they get elected? You move into the White House, right? You go someplace cool. You don't sit down and let blind people crawl on you, right? You don't let broken people crawl on you. You don't let kids crawl on you. You're important now. You're the king. You're the president. You're the whatever, the governor. Here, Jesus does something that is just not right. doesn't seem to fit. He draws these people in. And I see in him... A new kind of king reflected in another passage, I think, of Micah 6. Um, Micah 6, 6 through 8, this is kind of another famous passage that fits in, I think, with this vision we're given of Jesus, this king who has come, who is different. What shall I come before the Lord with? In other words, what does God want from me? Maybe we put it that way. 
and bow down before the exalted God? What should we do? Well, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with sacrifices, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil, which is a lot of olive oil? Shall I offer... Shall I go so far as to offer my firstborn son? I can't imagine any sacrifice more painful than the death of a child, right? So, so he says, should I kill my own child? Shall I give my children to you? What do you want? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And here we get this little moment here. What is it that God wants for you, from you? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? And I don't have it on my slide, which leaves you all guessing what happened. Well, and Cheryl's going to show off and just quote it. No, no, very good, very good. To do justice, to love kindness or love mercy, your text might say, to walk humbly with God. This is perhaps the worst travesty of translation that's happened in the scriptures. Uh, to love justice is good. Um, it is not to have affection for justice, as we might think of love, but rather be committed to justice and to seeing that others receive justice. And also here, it says to love kindness or to love mercy, depending on your translation. This word is a word I've made a lot of noise about and will continue until uh, we part ways, but it is chesed. It is to say You are to love or to do, to practice justice, and also to chesed, to have loyalty to God. Covenant loyalty to God. And then that last line, which I find so interesting, to walk humbly with God. Which is to say, our God is a God who is not looking for trappings. But we are of a God who is looking for people who are transformed into a new kind of people whose hearts are directed, whose wills are directed, whose mind and actions are directed toward the God who cares about Lazarus. Lazarus. The God who marches through Jerusalem with this grand procession of all of these poor insignificant, quote-unquote, right? insignificant in terms of power and wealth and prestige. Just the crowds are going nuts, and Jesus is just a, living in that extolation, right? He's just living in all of this noise, and he goes in the temple, and he casts them out, and then he sits down, and he says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, who, you who are blind and broken. Come to me, you who don't have a king who looks after you. Come to me, you who have received no good. You who have been rejected by those around you, by your parents, by your family, by your sister. Those of you who feel like you don't belong, I am the king for you. Come to me. Come to me. That's what this week is about. That is what our king is about. And so we sit in a world that is deeply troubled, made of dives and Lazarus and everything in between, and we have to ask the question as we read the stories of Jesus, ask the question, like, what, what do we do with this? What do we do now? What will you do with this king? There are Lazaruses all around you, maybe not begging in the same way. Um, but we heard a great, those of you who made it to the Christian convention this week, uh, Shane Claiborne told a great story about 
Mother Teresa, which I will repeat now, not mine, his, he served with Mother Teresa, and it was a really interesting story, but he said, he said he was asking, or somebody asked, I can't remember if it was him or somebody else, asked Mother Teresa, like, well, what do we do when we go back to the States when we don't have people who are dying of leprosy and poverty all around us? Like, what do you do in, like, Portage, right, which doesn't look a whole lot like Calcutta. I don't know if you know anything about Calcutta, but it doesn't look the same. A third world country, and she said to him, uh, she said that there are Calcuttas everywhere if you have eyes to see them. And so one of the things I've been thinking about for this week, um, coming off of the convention and into this coming week, I was thinking, I'm going to start praying for God to show me the Calcutta here in Portage. Where's Lazarus around us that we could reach out? These are a lot of questions I've raised today, a lot of scriptures that we've kind of We've, we've touched on and tried to pull apart a little bit to try to find some meaning. And all kinds of questions should come bubbling up to the services. If there's Lazarus all around us, how do we touch them? How do we, how do we reach out to them? Another one, if Jesus is coming to bring a new kingdom, he's a new king. And this is, this is not really a metaphor in the strict sense. Jesus is indeed king. He rules over all things. He is the one who now sets our lives agenda. Which asks the question, how has Jesus set your agenda? How has he set your calendar? When you open it up, if you're like me and you live by the calendar on your phone, how has Jesus set your calendar? How has his priorities become your priorities? How have his commitments become your commitments? His passions, your passions. Is he truly a king over you? And if he is, prove it. Prove it. Another one, God says that Jesus is the cornerstone who who crushes Or who breaks us, have you been broken? And if you have, you say yes to me, I'm going to ask you how. Tell me. Tell me how. Because one of the things that we are very good at doing is it is very good and very easy for us to come into church and receive all kinds of uh, maybe warm, gooey feelings, some fellowship. I love seeing you guys. This this church is so wonderful in the amount of fellowship that we have and your real love and genuine concern for one another but it's easy to leave here without asking really hard questions and i want to ask you this week is a week for hard questions this is a week of piety this is a week to care about what we say matters this is a week to consider jesus and all that he's done and so i want to suggest to you that as we think about the story of dives and lazarus as we consider that and as the band comes up and uh, gets ready to uh, uh, lead us into our last song. As I think about that story, I don't really resonate with the rich man. I don't feel very rich. <laughs> and I don't really feel like Lazarus. That's certainly not true. So who am I in this story? What am I supposed to be in this story? What am I supposed to do with this story? And it occurred to me as I was thinking about it and contemplating Jesus, the king who we didn't expect, the king who bears our stripes, who bears our transgressions, who bears our wounds and our iniquities, the king who comes and bears all of this that we might be healed. I think maybe the point of the story is that we are to be Abraham. We are to be the one who draws Lazarus close. That if we are truly left here to carry on the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul puts in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, um, 
then we are to be the people who are taking the place of Jesus in some way and drawing the broken in and caring about those who no one else cares about. And so if this week draws you into anything, if you can manage a prayer this week, this is going to be the prayer I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray that God will show you Lazarus and that he will inspire you to be Abraham, that we might reflect the goodness, mercy, life, truth, grace, and love of Jesus the King. Let's stand as we sing this last song.